0: Hello everyone, welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the managing director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum at the intersection of finance, technology, politics, and increasingly we've had some interesting guests in the field of entertainment. And uh, the guest that we have today sort of crosses a lot of those different lines. It's going to be a very interesting talk. Uh, But SALT Talks are a series of digital interviews we've been doing during the work-from-home period uh, in lieu of our global conference series, the SALT Conference. And really what we're trying to do is provide our audience a window into the minds of subject matter experts who are leading investors, creators, and thinkers. We're also trying to provide a platform for big, important ideas that we think are shaping the future and changing the world. Uh, today, we're very excited to welcome Chris Fenton uh, to Salt Talks. Uh, for 17 years, Chris was the president of DMG Entertainment Motion Picture Group, orchestrating the creative and the international business activities of DMG, which is a multi-billion do- dollar global media company uh, headquartered in Beijing. And he's produced or supervised 21 films, grossing uh, $2 billion in worldwide uh, global box office revenue. Uh, As an author, Fenton chronicled much of that work in his new book, which is out today. Congratulations to Chris on the release of his book. Uh, The book is called Feeding the Dragon Inside the Trillion Dollar Dilemma Facing Hollywood, the NBA and American Business. Uh, You can learn more about the book at feedingthedragonbook.com. We highly recommend it. As you'll learn during the talk, Chris has a very practical, real world experience on on dealing with China and he offers really practical insights into into the path forward uh, for US-China relations. Uh, At at present, he speaks regularly as a China expert and serves as the CEO of Media Capital Technologies, having concluded a successful term as senior advisor to IDW Media Holdings, focused on streamlining operations, expanding international business, and restructuring investments. Uh, Chris also hosts U.S. congressional member delegations on diplomatic missions to China, focused on trade, media, and investment. He's a trustee of the US Asia Institute and serves on several company boards. Uh, Chris is a contributor to Real Clear Politics, The Federalist, and The Rap, and he regularly appears as a US China commentator on Bloomberg, Fox News, Fox Business, BBC, and CNBC, among many others. Uh, Chris holds a bachelor's degree in engineering from Cornell University, and he resides with his wife and his two children in Manhattan Beach, California. So uh, hosting today's interview, as usual, will be Anthony Scaramucci, the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, a global alternative investment firm. Anthony is also the chairman of SALT. Uh, And just a reminder, if you have any questions for Chris during today's interview, you can enter them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen. And with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony for the interview.
1: Well, John, thanks so much, Chris. Uh, It's very exciting to have you on. This is incredibly timely. Some of your issues were on the front page of your local newspaper in the LA Times uh, today, uh, which I appreciate you sending me this morning. But I want to I want to start where I always start in a Assault Talk, because I think you have a lot of young people on as well, and we would love to get your background, your backstory. I know it has something to do with Olive Garden. I, I keep hearing that it it's central to your backstory, and it's had some impact on your life. So why don't we start there, Chris?
2: Yeah, it's, uh, it's, there's not a lot of uniqueness to it. I think it's, uh, it, there's, there's similarities to a lot of sort of middle class, upper middle class upbringings. I was born and raised in South Florida. My father was an engineer for United Technologies. Um, I had one sibling, a younger brother of two years, um, who's actually with United Technologies now, and, and my mom. Thank God they're both still around. Um, and uh, we moved to Connecticut when I was in high school. Uh, Went to Glastonbury High School, public school there, and graduated uh, and shot off to Cornell University, got an engineering degree. Um, In 1993, when I graduated school, um, we were in a bit of a um, poor economic environment. Uh, I didn't have a lot of opportunities. I was not the best student in the world. I think I was a C plus, B minus at best. Um, So I hopped in my car. Stayed in a bunch of fraternity houses across the country, and just sort of tried to find a city I wanted to live in and set roots. It took me about six or seven months to do so. And a buddy of mine uh, who was a hotelie, uh at Cornell was was working as the beverage director of that pretty woman hotel at the foot of Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills, and he talked me into visiting for a couple of days, and I never left. Um, I was flat broke at the time. So uh, I wanted to get a bartending job like I had up, in, uh, up at Cornell and looked around and realized, oh my God, every beautiful actor and actress works their way up through the bartending uh, hierarchy of every nice restaurant over the course of a decade. Um, so I realized I wasn't going to get a good job that way. Um, so I got the first job I could get in order to pay my rent, which was as an, a waiter at the
1: Olive Garden. And that's where the journey into Hollywood started and how many breadsticks did you have at the olive garden before we get into the more serious stuff you know i wasn't a breadstick consumer i was uh um
2: eventually fired because i was addicted to tiramisu and i would sneak into the freezer every night and eat a bunch of them and then move the plates around so that
1: no one noticed they were missing and oh okay um, that that's a good thing to do yeah. pre pre-pan- pre-pandemic but uh, yeah yeah Well, I, I, you know, there's an olive garden, John and I live in the same hometown. There's an olive garden on old country road that I had to stop going to in 1995 because I was uh, unlimited breadsticks, not a good look for me. Um, (laughs) All right, but I want to, I want to, I want to dive right into the book. You're pretty much talking about your career, China, U S China relationship. Uh, This book is coming out in a very timely way. It's right before the election There's a lot of stress in that relationship right now. Uh, We were talking before we went live to our uh, SALT attendees about you can't go back to where we were. We have to go forward. What happens here, Chris? How do you lay it out for us? What do you think happens here?
2: Well, it's funny what I, after spending almost 20 years in the U.S.-China space and the exchange of culture and commerce, Um, I became a bit of a a practical applied expert in that space. I'm not a a Bloviat think tank expert with a PhD in China studies. Um, I didn't live in China full time ever during that time. I'd spent a lot of time on planes going back and forth. But just over that amount of time, I gathered a lot of information and intel and experience and expertise um, and quite frankly, I felt like a lot of people could have just fallen into the same position and done the same thing. Um, but it was a very colorful journey. So one of the things I really wanted to do at some point was to write those memoirs out. And I had a bunch of opportunities from publishers that were interested. And, and they approached me more on like, a, hey, give us the 10 best you know, business practices to abide by when dealing with China or some sort of expertise type of book. And I said, no, I always looked up to Michael Lewis and the way he wrote. And I always loved Liar's Poker, which I'd read a hundred different times and just thought it was a really, really entertaining, engaging look at something that could be very off-putting for most readers because maybe they don't want to know much about the intricacies of Wall Street. But he wrote it in a way that engaged almost anyone. And that's what I wanted to do with this. And part of that was to engage readers in 15 years of what we had been doing under this mission of rampant globalism and how that rampant globalism was great for capitalism, but on top of it, it was great for Americans. And to open the market of China any way possible, any way you could, was in the best interest of everybody. So we always were stuck in the fog of war during those colorful years of trying anything we could, obviously within the rules of law, in order to open that market more and more. And we succeeded more and more. But what happened as I started thinking about the proposal for the book was all of that colorful journey was going to add up into, hey, and we got to continue doing this. This is great for us. But then something happened when I got back from the last congressional delegation trip I had in September Um, Took three members of Congress over there. We met with Carrie Lam and the protesters Um, President Trump was in the middle of a lot of tweeting and 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 really heavy-handed rhetoric towards the Chinese during that time We went up to Beijing. We met all with the officials up there and we got back and a month later the Daryl Morey tweet the Houston Rockets GM who I didn't even know who he was. I just knew Houston Rockets, biggest brand in NBA when it comes to China because of Yao Ming. I knew the moment that tweet came out and I saw it, I was like, that's going to be a terrible situation for the NBA. And I was right. But what I didn't see and I didn't even think of was how the American public was going to perceive that situation as something that woke them up to the pandering that our capitalistic endeavors we're doing in regards to getting access to that market. And that was the moment that made me go, I'm going to tell this journey. I'm going to explain how we all got here to this date, but I'm also going to put out there that we need to change things. This turned out not to be the best experiment out there. It hasn't worked out the way we wanted it to. And we need to come together as a country to address it.
0: Chris, there's a, A part of your book where you talk about something called Fenton's five forces of diplomacy. You talk about all the different areas where countries can find common ground and uh, and build some level of consensus. But. Obviously, in the United States and China, we have very different political systems and, and a lot of different value systems. But you talk in the book a lot about how the exchange of culture and commerce is so important if we're going to find some common ground and avoid a sort of cold war between the, the two world superpowers. So you talk a little bit more about those five forces and why you think on a practical level that exchange of culture and commerce is so important?
2: Yeah, well, I, I a lot of times in regards to dealing with North American companies in China during my tenure of doing this, I found that the more in the weeds you got with China, the harder it was to get something done. So um, China's a lot like an onion. And if you keep peeling away, there's just more and more peels. And on top of it, with the depth of my experience in China, there was only so much I was going to learn before I got over my skis and explaining things, um, about that country. Um, so one of the things I I did was try to comprehend and then also be able to explain the superpower relationship. And, and I was, uh, I had a meeting once with, with Andy Campion, who's the CFO of Nike and I was talking about how I feel like there's five different bars of service that work between the two superpowers. And he said, well, that's sort of like quarters, five forces in business. Why don't you call them Fenton's five forces of diplomacy? And I said, hey, that's a great idea. So that's where the name came from. So let's talk about what the five forces are. Assume that the chi- China and the U.S. are cell phone and cell tower. To have a perfect communication between the two of them, you want five bars of service. Those five bars of service, in my view, are national security interests, politics, human rights, commerce, and culture. Unfortunately, we we have learned that in politics, they're not coming any closer to the way we run a democracy. They're very happy, or at least the CCP is very happy running that country as a communist country. Um, Human rights, we have definitely seen some huge differences there. National security, we're starting to see them as a dragon spreading its wings, whether it's the South China Sea or issues in other parts of the world with the Belt and Road Initiative, etc. We're starting to realize that there's three forces that we need to agree to disagree on. So that leaves us with two left, commerce and culture. One thing I know from 20 years is that they love the culture from the West. It's aspirational, it has freedoms that they don't have, it has really interesting things that they are excited about and they engage in. And that is the same as some of the movie posters behind me or wearing a really cool Nike pair of shoes. The second thing is there's a lot of commerce going on between the two countries. Um, We are very entangled in that web, so this idea of decoupling is very difficult. So we have two bars of service that seem to be working pretty well. And quite frankly, even through all this crazy rhetoric and a lot of the barking between both sides, that commerce and cultural exchange is still happening. So my feeling is if we continue it under a fully rebooted bilateral relationship, which we need to address, we can avoid a cold war or even worse, something that escalates to war
0: you've been advising a few House members on, on Congress's China task force. You're also working with the Senate side as well. You talked about the idea of a larger reset. What do you think it's going to require to uh, put that reset in motion and to baby step into a more healthy relationship between the United States and China?
2: Yeah, I mean, well, one thing about China is that a lot of times when, a, when somebody goes over there and sees the opportunity with that market, they get overwhelmed with how how big the potential is and oh my God, the world's our oyster. And they can never get anywhere um, because they're thinking too big and they're not thinking about intermediary steps. And you bring up the idea of baby steps in this reset. And I agree, there's gotta be baby steps that we can accomplish that continue to build towards a true resetting of the relationship. So in some of the conversations I've had with congressional members, um, and by the way, I'm not the smartest guy in the room. I'm just offering suggestions. And I hope everybody comes together and sort of offers um, voices from different points of view to get this done. But some easy ones, I mean, uh, are are as basic as, I mean, one thing they're fighting is the WTO designation of China as a developing nation. I think we should get the WTO to actually call them a developed nation at this point. Um, that's something that even we had to fight early in our industrial revolution, the United States, until Europe said, hey, you've caught up to us now. In fact, you stole a lot of our stuff and all that kind of thing. So you're going to be on the same footing as us. We need to do the same
1: thing with China. We need to also do this. And as you guys know, in the financial oh, services... Well, well, well Chris, let me stop you for one second. Why do you think we haven't done that thus far? It's been almost 20 years since the WTO were introduced. Introduction. Honestly, I don't I don't know
2: the answer to that question. I'm assuming there's a very strong lobbying effort to keep it the way that it is. And that's keeping us from being able to get that done. Plus, the WTO involves other countries too that are involved with that designation. But it's something that seems very obvious to me. On the China side, I know, because I've been in the meetings with our congressional members when they pitched the idea of, Well, we're still developing. Have you been to a third tier city? Have you been to a fourth tier city? Have you been to our suburbs? They look like they are any developing nation. Our per capita income is way below yours and at the level of developing nations. I mean, they have every argument in the book you can imagine. So there's obviously a lot of forces fighting on it, but it seems like a pretty basic principle to come to an agreement on, at least if you're not China. The other thing, too, is, uh, and this is the same situation where the accounting practices by, um, you know, companies over there, particularly the SOEs that have state secret laws that they're hiding behind, they haven't had to partake in the same accounting practices that other companies do when they're accessing capital markets here in the United States. That's obviously something that we're seeing a push for, and that's something that should get done.
1: What do, you, what do you think of the new national security law that was invoked in Hong Kong? and what, what kind of problems do you think that presents for China with the West?
2: Well, the biggest, I mean, one problem when you work with China for a long time is you start to understand their point of view a little more. Um, when I was there with three members of Congress you know, it was obvious that you started to absorb the idea that Hong Kong was always China's. So China did have a deal to take it back with the Brits. Um, and I think the, the belief was, is that over 50 years, China would become more like the West, so that when they did take over Hong Kong, Hong Kong would be the same as that it always had been. Um, unfortunately, we have learned that China doesn't Seem to be coming more to the west, and on top of it, that 50-year agreement ended after 23 years, just a couple months ago. Um, The national security uh, law is obviously something that's um, really—it's happened sort of as we are looking the other way, and it's creating a lot of issues. I mean, in one particular instance, and it falls in line with um, some of the issues that I have with Hollywood's business in in China is cross-border censorship. So you have cross-border censorship of movies, where a movie company, a movie studio, is told to change certain things in a movie, not just for the China market, but for the world to see. And we're seeing the same thing through the National Security Law, where the voice of anybody outside of the border of Hong Kong or China could be punishable under this new form of law, um, because China is calling the jurisdiction of the world uh, partly uh, under their domain.
0: So Chris I want to go back to the Hollywood piece so that's sort of the crux of your experience in China is bringing large Hollywood productions to the Chinese market and, and uh, obviously it's a great cash flow stream for a lot of these studios, but it involves a lot of cross-border censorship. As you mentioned, there's a couple of examples, case studies that we've spoken about in the past. One of them is Looper, another one is Iron Man 3. Could you talk through those case studies and explain to our audience exactly the process that takes place with these studios in bringing movies to the Chinese market? This was the subject of the article in the LA Times this morning about whether Hollywood is kowtowing to the Chinese excessively. And uh, you know, just explain the challenges of of that from a business perspective, and then obviously you talked about the uh, the general public's reaction to the NBA's decision to sort of go soft on, on the China thing. Could you just talk us through that process? Yeah, for
2: sure. Well, one thing in regards to the baby step approach of changing things so that we add up add up to changing a lot of things um, in the microcosm of Hollywood. There's a lot of simple changes that I think we should push for too. For instance, we only get 25 cents of every dollar that a movie makes in that market, whereas the global average is between 45 and 50%. So we need to change that. On top of it, they have severe uh, regulations over how many of our movies or international movies get into that market. So that's another issue that we need to address, which is this quota situation that most other markets don't have. Um, Moving into the censorship world, uh, one, of the, one of the things that I'm okay with, uh, because Hollywood has been okay with it with other countries like Japan, Korea, Middle East, etc., is that there is a censorship of the content within the borders of China. So they might see something that they feel is offensive, or maybe there's drug use, or maybe there's uh, criminal activity on, the, on in the movie scene that they want to remove from the film And we comply by doing that the same way we would do if we were showing something in the UAE or in Korea based on sort of what are the standards for their censorship practices. Where I have a big issue is in what I call cross-border censorship. And that's when, um, as Senator Ted Cruz said in regards to this latest Tom Cruise movie, um, the flight jacket that Tom Cruise wears had the Taiwanese flag on it. Obviously, the CCP and China don't recognize Taiwan as a separate country nor having their own flag. So they asked to have it removed from the movie, but they didn't ask to have it just removed from the movie that's shown in their territory. They asked for it to be removed from the content that's shown around the world. And for me, that's a big problem that we need to address. Um, One issue that's super offensive about it is the fact that you could argue that the biggest goal of the ccp is to keep 1.4 billion people just happy enough that they don't revolt so that there's another tiananmen square incident and you could argue if they see certain things like the taiwanese flag which might you know infer independence from the prc at one point or whatever and that might instill discontent towards the government that the government wants to have that off of the flight jacket in their territory to keep the populace happy. Um, The issue is, for me, that's super offensive, is they have a firewall in China. So if that flight jacket with the flag on it is shown in Peoria, Illinois, they have a way of keeping the majority of their population from seeing that flag. Um, Yet, They still want us to remove the flag, not because they care about their own populace, but they want the rest of the world not to recognize Taiwan as a separate country. Or they will censor LeBron James or Daryl Morey outside of their country, even though they could firewall them inside because they don't want anybody on the outside of their country talking about Hong Kong protesters and their fight for freedom and the support for that. That's a big issue. And we saw that when we did certain things like Looper. Looper, we actually took a movie that was supposed to take place in the future. It was a movie that starred Joseph Gordon-Levitt and, and um, Bruce Willis and Emily Blunt. Bruce Willis played Joseph Gordon-Levitt 40 years in the future. In the future in that movie, it was supposed to take place in France. But over time, we were able to convince the filmmaker, Ryan Johnson, who now is directing the Star Wars movies, to take a flyer and say, hey, let's move the future to China because China's probably going to be a big part of the future in in the world today and, and 40 years from now. He agreed, we moved it, and we actually put Shanghai as the center location of the future. And we worked with the Shanghai municipal government to design their skyline the way they saw making their future 40 years to be right? And keep in mind, time travel is censored in China. They do not like any content with time travel because they want to control the narrative of the past. And they definitely want to control the narrative of where things are going. But we convinced them they could control the narrative of where the movie goes by working with us with the plot, and with the locations to make it look like the city of the future. Now, the one thing that they did do that we almost um, lost all our money on is they came to us and said, hey, we want seven minutes of that Shanghai footage in the film. The problem is only about three to four minutes of it really worked. So we cut out the extra three minutes and they said, you know what, if you do that, we're not releasing the movie in China then we actually had to take that 7 minutes and put it in the Chinese in the Chinese version of the film so they at least had it there and then they fought with us to get it into the global cut because they wanted the globe to see all of that footage it was a big war between us and China Film Group and the State Administration of Radio, Film, and Television that we ultimately won over with various other concessions. But it was a perfect example of how they're not just trying to control narrative in country; they're trying to control narrative outside of their borders, and that's a real problem we need to address as the nation.
1: You're 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 on top of a lot of different things commercially, and and you're. You're seeing the world in this real politics sort of way. So uh, envision for us what a good future would look like with China in terms of the health of the bilateral relationship, respect for the two systems, and not browbeating each other too much, but also not stealing intellectual property and so forth. What do you say?
2: Um, it's a great question. So, so the book, um, it, partially because it tells a colorful journey, it brings in a lot of characters like myself. And you realize we weren't evildoers or greedy capitalists. We were actually on this mission under the guise of, you know, globalism is good for everyone. Right. And you learn that and you see the collaborative effect between the two countries working together in various different case studies that I walk through in the book in an entertaining kind of way. And you see the camaraderie that's built between the two superpowers, how it's covered in the press and how it's seen by the leadership. So we know that it is to our benefit if we can do something like this right in the future, not just decouple fully. But what we need to do, obviously, in order to feel good about that type of cultural and commercial exchange moving forward, is we need to address a bunch of things that have come to light recently. I mean, for instance, repatriating manufacturing, particularly in the in the areas of national security interests, we have to do. We either have to bring them back here, or we need to bring it to Western allies. Number two is we're realizing, and, and Shamath was on Um, I guess a month ago with you guys talking about this theory of the fourth turning, which is something that that I find an interesting theory also. But if you're looking at how globalism and particular relationship with China has caused an effect, a negative effect on probably 90% of Americans, you realize that a rebalancing or resetting or a fourth turning needs to occur to address the system so that 90% of the country is feeling benefits of what we do moving forward. And part of that is rebuilding our middle class, rebuilding a labor class, rebuilding skill set jobs that come back here and are repatriated. So um, when we repatriate manufacturing, obviously national security issues are a big issue, but also ones that create jobs here are another big one. Um, On top of that, we wanna make sure that we, and we talked about this earlier, we rebalance the, the trade uh, that is going on between the two countries. The tariffs, the quotas, the technology transfers, the IP theft, um, the forced joint ventures. For instance, Disney owns just 43% of their theme park in Shanghai. China owns the other 57%. Um, in order to sell cars like GM in China, They have to give a JV ownership to China of 51% in order to get access to that market. We need to change that. I mean, there's a laundry list of different things that we need to do. They're all very tangible and a great sort of, hey, check that box, check that box, check that box. There's going to be compromise on a lot of that stuff. But the important thing is, is we can get it done. There is a road to victory in that kind of situation that we can follow on a baby step approach and then create a better bilateral relationship on
1: the backside of it. I think think it's very smart, I just wanna follow up and then John has some questions from the audience. So as a capitalist, uh, you're doing the right things, pragmatism, you're trying to intersect with a system that's different from our system and be respectful. There are some things going on inside of China. I don't know a lot about them, but there's, uh, you know, there's concentration camps potentially. Uh, They they deny some of that. Uh, Western investigative journalists say that there are concentration camps where there is uh, Muslims that are being held in certain situations in China. As a capitalist, how do you feel about that? And how do you feel about... uh, aiding a system that is doing that? Is that something that we should be doing, not be doing? Should we be ignoring that as capitalists? What's your recommendation there? Well, I think as a human being, you don't
2: want to support it. And a capitalist is a human being. And there's no capitalist I know that supports that kind of treatment of other human beings. No, but
1: hear me out. If you're over there doing commerce in China and it's supporting their markets and it's supporting the government and that government is doing that, Uh, How do you reconcile? So the reconciliation
2: is as a unified front. Um, If Bob Iger at Disney says, you know, we don't stand for the way you're treating the Hong Kong citizens or the Uyghurs, and we want that to change ASAP. There's shareholders and investors that obviously are inspired and passionate about creating revenues from China And they'll simply replace Bob or whoever takes his spot with the person that does comply. Um, It becomes a -a whack-a-mole situation. If LeBron James comes out in support of the Hong Kong protesters, um, which is the right thing to do, he'll get all his endorsements replaced by some other basketball player. In fact, if we don't even unify with our Western allies on this, but we get all of Hollywood backing the idea... We might find Telemunchen out of Germany or Studio Canal out of France or Bollywood taking the spots of some of our studios. So I talked about it earlier, but one thing we need to do is obviously keep this from being a third rail issue. Joe Sy of the Brooklyn Nets called it a third rail issue when the human rights issue was talked about in terms of the Hong Kong protesters. We need to air it out. I mean, this is not a, the amount of compliments I've gotten about how I'm being a squeaky wheel here from friends in Hollywood is really flattering. It's amazing. It's nice. But the fact that they end every email with, I can't say this stuff publicly, but I'm glad you are, that's the problem. Like, we need to talk about this stuff. We shouldn't be ashamed of it. I mean, we were under this mission of globalism is great and look the other way with certain things, but now we're woke to it or whatever the word is we want to use. So let's talk about it and let's create rules for the road. What are we okay with and what aren't we okay with? And everybody has to abide by it. I mean, the accounting practices thing, which is not even a human rights issue. Well, if Goldman Sachs comes out and says, we're going to stand for the way it should be well j p. Morgan comes in and takes that business, right? But if everybody's on the same playing field, suddenly we have a way to address this stuff, and we might
1: actually be able to create change it, it, it makes sense it's just a big it's a big issue for people we're we're all trying to reconcile listen i'm pro the diplomatic bilateral strengthening of that relationship we we can't live in each other's systems, and we can't police people internally any more than other countries can police us internally. So, but it's hard. It's a very hard issue for a lot of people. Well, well as, I'll tell you, Chris I was writes
0: in the book. As Chris writes in the book, there was one person who called him out on some of the obsequiousness and, and sycophancy that he practiced uh, toward the Chinese, and that was his wife. So, it's a lesson. All of us always listen to your wife.
2: Yeah, I'm 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 ready for the the mooch and the misses to come back. That was one of my favorite podcasts when working out. Oh
1: well, yeah, we're gonna bring it back after Labor Day, actually. But um, we we put it on hold because of everything that's going on. But uh, yeah, no, she she takes a cheese grater to the side of my head for about 45 minutes. And Fenton, let me tell you something. It's a lot cheaper than therapy. Okay, so trust me. You know, that 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 is definitely coming back. But by the way, you're, you're hundred percent right. Like it
2: is like rainbows and unicorns to think this is easy. Okay. But what we definitely need to do is at least start talking about it. Like it's, it, there's so much ostrich in the sand going on right now. And we all know it's there. It's that elephant in the room. I mean, I even suggested to one senators chief of staff the other day, why don't you call up one of those C-suite guys and just get together in Omaha or something. Don't tell anyone and actually say, hey, what are the pressures? What are the things that are causing you not to be able to talk about this and address it? And I, as a senator, I'm gonna tell you the pressures that I have that are making me talk about it, right? And how do we find a Venn diagram that intersects at some point so we can actually deal with this thing and quite frankly, move on. Like We need to figure this out, but it's crazy and it's bifurcating the country in a terrible way.
0: So just to to further we agree. dive we, into we agree. to further dive into the complexity of this issue. So you've been critical of the hypocrisy uh, of the NBA's silence on Hong Kong, but you've defended people like LeBron and Disney executives, for example, uh, for their silence and for the approach they've taken towards uh, China. Could you square those two points of view for us?
2: Well, I'm not. It, I, it goes back to the whack a mole thing. I mean. It, if we don't have a rules of engagement that everybody's abiding by, like what's the use of somebody standing up and saying something because they're just becoming a sacrificial lamb. I mean, it drove me crazy. I got called onto a lot of shows right after the Daryl Morey tweet. And in fact, it was a Bloomberg um, interview that I did where they asked me about LeBron and they asked about Senator Marco Rubio who was telling him, you got to say something, blah, 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 right? What's crazy is that The personal sacrifice that LeBron makes by saying something that we all want him to say is huge. Whereas a senator telling him to do it, there's nothing that really affects that senator personally. There's no sacrifice, right? It's just a good soapbox sort of stance to take. And it's something we all want to say, but we can't, right? What we need to do is set up a situation where everybody's following the same if we're cool with what's going on with the Uyghurs and the Hong Kong takeover and all that stuff, then no one should have to talk about it publicly because we're saying, Hey, we're good with that as a nation. So LeBron, we're not going to put you on the spot about it. But if we're not good with it as a nation, then we got to say what we are good with as a nation. And if somebody does speak up about it, we got to back them. And Disney is the same. Disney has a really difficult situation with Mulan. That's a, that's a movie which, by the way, is not coming out uh, when it's supposed to, which I think is a blessing in disguise because I don't think United States citizens are going to be super excited about watching a two-hour tentpole movie with a lot of Chinese faces, Chinese locations, and Chinese mythology right now. Um, But on top of it, Disney has a problem where the two biggest stars of that movie have spoken up on behalf of the CCP supporting them and the takeover of Hong Kong against the Hong Kong people. So in a perfect world, Disney would come up and say, we don't agree with that. We support the rights of the Hong Kong people and the fact that they have another 27 years before the turnover and blah, 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 blah. But Disney can't do that. They have so much money at stake in that market. And if they do it, you know what, Universal Steam Park that opens up in Beijing will just take all the business away from Disney Steam Park in Shanghai. It just becomes a sacrificial lamb whack-a-mole situation. So we just need to be unified
1: on it.
0: Chris, we're gonna leave it there. I know you have a lot of media hits today on the release day of your book. So congratulations again. Hold the book up for our audience so they can they can go find it. It's feedingthedragonbook.com. You can find out more about the book. Chris talks about his career in Hollywood, a lot of the issues that we spoke about, and he he writes about them at much more length. So go check out his book. Uh, it'll be worth your time.
1: Chris, it's a fascinating discussion. I hope that we can get you back before the election, if that's okay, because we'd, I'd love to interview you as we're, we're heading into middle October.
2: I would love to be on. I'm completely honored and humbled to be on this to begin with. I mean, your guests are unbelievable. The stuff that I've learned from listening to them has been incredible. So thank you for having me on.
1: Um, and uh, we feel the same way about you. Your, your pragmatism and realism in dealing with this issue is something that we're going to need uh, no matter which direction we go from a political perspective. So thank you, Chris. Greatly appreciate you being on. Thank you, guys. Take care and be, be well. Okay. Thank you.